A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. We've been going down some dark alleyways figuratively speaking or conversationally speaking in the past few episodes. And, you know, honestly, we're getting to a point where maybe we should do something a little more lighthearted in the the future. Well, that's not true. We have a lighthearted interview uh, for The Legend of Cocaine Island that's out now by the time you hear this. So that's that's a fun listen, right? Right. Yeah. We've got uh, stuff unicorns don't want you to know on the slate. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's weird because I was thinking, I, I was reading something about unicorns, oddly enough, now that you mentioned this, uh, where wherein someone who was a, uh, a zoologist of some sort or another said, based on the fact that they had a single horn and based on the fact that it was positioned in the center of their forehead facing forward, uh, what that tells us about their behavior is this very similar to rhinos. So unicorns, if they did exist, would probably be belligerent antagonistic animals capable of great violence. They'd be very stabby. And that's something unicorns don't want you to know. That's right. Mm, not all, to profile. You know, yeah, exactly. All the glitter and all the shininess. Yeah. And their weird thing with virgins. Have you seen that movie Legend with a very, mm-hmm. very young Tom Cruise? And a and very awesome Tim Curry. A very awesome Tim Curry wearing a giant rubber Satan suit. And there's a whole thing where they like, the unicorns play a big part in that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very, very important. There's also the animated The Last Unicorn. Which is really mm. sad. Yeah. 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 I was thinking about the Brie Larson, her directorial debut. Well, something about the unicorn store, something to that effect. That's on Netflix now, right? It is. Is it? Spoiler okay. alert, does not seem to have anything to actually do with unicorns. I know. Just putting that out there. Well, thank you guys. You've saved me a few hours. You know what else <laughs> has absolutely nothing to do with unicorns? The healthcare in the prison system. That's right. Nice segue. <laughs> So the U.S. healthcare system is, by any measure, no matter how you look at it, no matter what your opinion is, and everybody has opinions about this, by any measure, it's anomalous. One of the world's wealthiest countries with one of the world's worst performing uh, healthcare shticks, you know, like not in comparison to very, very impoverished countries so much as in comparison to other countries we would consider uh, peer countries economically, right? Yeah. 
And there's the, the one thing we all agree on is that this thing is rife with problems. It's lousy with problems and things that don't work and it's complicated by the fact that there is a ton of money wrapped up in this issue. Uh, doctors make a ton of money. Hospitals, uh, of course, insurance companies make tons of money. There's a lot riding on this and that means there's also extensive propaganda in play. You'll hear some people say, well, the entire problem with U.S. healthcare is that it is to a great degree run by privatized insurance companies, that they're the root of the problem as they continually put profits over the greater good. So for some people, that's fighting words. For other people, it's like, you know, shrug.gif. That's what companies do. That's what for-profit businesses do. Other people say, no, it's broken, but the problem is not honest, red-blooded American business. It's that the government is involved. And every time Uncle Sam is involved in something, uh, it, it's going to be ruinous because the government is inefficient and corrupt. Sometimes that's a sincere argument. Sometimes it's a starve the beast argument. Depends on where you hear about it. And today's episode is not about that cartoonishly, tragically comic state of medical care in the U.S. overall. That's probably its own podcast. Today's episode instead is about one of the worst case scenarios for anyone who lives in this country and ever gets sick or ever needs some sort of medical treatment, healthcare in prison. Yeah, two, two things you don't want to be a part of, sick and uh, incarcerated. So just to get a better understanding of this problem, it's best to start with some statistics. We all love those. So let's look at just the U.S. population in general. As of 2018, the population in this country was 327.2 million human beings. 28.7% of the population is under the age of 18. So, you know, that's almost a third of the people very, very young. About 15.6 of the population is over the age of 65. And then that leaves uh, the people who are not minors, you know, who are 18. Uh, and they're also not – they're above 18, below senior citizen, mm -hmm. uh, which are going to be the primary, the primary age range for people who are incarcerated. Right, right. The regular, the the regular Joes and Janes. Uh, this is interesting. That fifteen point six percent number for elderly and senior citizens makes sense because, due in large part to the way the healthcare system here does or does not work, uh, we have a disturbingly low life expectancy compared to other, what are called first world countries or other developed countries is a better phrase. So. Though that's that's the population by the numbers. What about what about the medical stuff? Do we have any stats for that? Yeah. So the U.S. spends way more on healthcare than any other nation on this here globe. Um, Ten thousand three hundred forty-eight dollars per person, which amounts to nearly eighteen percent of GDP. Uh, which is seems bonkers to me. Um, Government-funded Medicare and Medicaid account for more than a dollar of every three dollars of U.S. health care spending, and a dollar every four dollars in the federal budget. The entire federal budget, which we know, is a is like seems like one of those imaginary numbers, you know, <laughs> the trillions. Yeah, yeah. It's largely a it, it is largely a uh, series of wishes and promises increasingly <laughs> ambitious pitches i yeah. was going to say yeah, totally. from congress absolutely and and it's been growing right it's been growing medicare at least at more than twice the rate of inflation it's forecast to accelerate as what we call the baby boomer generation ages uh, ages increasingly into that elderly demographic so that's one thing upon which we cannot blame millennials Sorry. I know some of us in the audience are, uh, dig that. but Yeah. And then that's just for Medicare. That's, that's the part that the government helps out with. Right, right. And that's for people who do have Medicare, you're considered to have health care. There are a lot of other health care comes from employers, kind of like what we have sitting in this room, including mission control over there. You're absolutely right, Matt. Um, in 2016, private health insurance covered more people than the government does. So you pay – like think of think of every country as a club. We've said this before in previous episodes. The concept of taxes, the concept of taxation is at heart in a very oversimplified way. It's the same thing as paying dues to a club. You, a country club perhaps? Sure. A country club, um, 
a chess club that has a nice HQ if they have those. The, the idea is you, you pay into this thing and because you've paid into this thing, you get certain rights. So you're a country club, a golf club, whatever. Uh, that goes to the maintenance of the place but it also goes to the maintenance of things you use. So the argument that people will have is that, well, if you pay taxes – here in a country, then those taxes should guarantee some of your rights, guarantee some maintenance, uh, and then arguably they could be in a situation where they pay to help uh, keep you alive or at least make your existence a little bit less painful than it would be without health insurance. Again, not everybody agrees with that. Uh, a lot of people think privatization is the answer. So that's why employer-based coverage covers uh, more than half of the population for part or all of the calendar year. And then there's Medicaid, 19.4%, Medicare, 16.7%. What's called direct purchase, I go out and buy my own stuff, 16.2% of people either thought that was a good idea or were forced to do it uh, through things like COBRA, right? Or military coverage, 4.6%. You're going to lay your life on the line for a country, the least we can do is, you know, not put you in the poorhouse if you have cancer, although that still happens. But this number doesn't answer everything because despite all these different kind of partial band-aids for keeping people alive and healthy, 28.5 million people in this country have no form of health insurance whatsoever all the year, all the live long day. Yeah, 8.8 percent. At least that's of, as of 2017. Right. And that number that number may have gone up or down a little bit, but it, it hasn't moved a ton yet. It may very well uh, in the in the near future, in the next three, ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that I don't know how this figures into this, the puzzle here, but I think it's fascinating and it certainly should be part of the conversation. It costs an average of thirty one thousand dollars per inmate per year to incarcerate an individual. It's like taxpayer money. So it's just crazy to me that like if we're paying that much to incarcerate a person, yet people outside of uh, the prison system, we wouldn't even consider spending that much on them and their well-being. It is uh, it is cheaper or it has been for a number of years. Uh, it is cheaper for the United States on a state and federal level to send someone to community college for – two to four years and pay for their uh, dorm or their apartment than it is to incarcerate them. And that's something I, I learned I think via Little Wayne originally, a uh, true story. But yeah, but it's true. It's, it's, we can get into the political reasons for that because the, the argument here doesn't bear out when you look at the math. It bears out when you look at what people like voting for. Right, which, mm. is, which is a little bit of a simplified way to say it, but it's true. And it's a big business. The U.S. locks up a lot of people. I was thinking about this earlier. I was going to say they lock up tons of people and then I read back through it and it's true. If you do the math on how much a single person weighs and you do the math on how many people are locked up, we are literally locking up tons and tons of people, tons of human flesh. Our prison population rate is roughly 700 per 100,000. That makes it the second highest incarceration rate of 222 countries tracked by the Institute for Criminal Policy Research. And that is such – a large net to cast, the ICPR uh, study, right now the UN doesn't recognize 222 countries. So they gave everybody a chance. This country locks up a half million more than China and that has a population five times larger than the US. This country, and this is a statistic that many of us have heard before and I wish it wasn't still true, this country holds 25% of the world's prison population, 25%. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's worse though because the statistic that follows right after, we're only 5% of the people in the world. Which means that if you think about it, just from living here, you have one of the highest chances in the world of going to prison. Yep. Okay, so what was it? We said 327-something million people Mm -hmm. in the United States. Well, the American criminal justice system holds within it incarcerated human beings 2.3 million people. That's crazy. There are – and it holds them in over 1,700 state prisons. 
There are 102 federal prisons and then 18, over 1,800 juvenile correctional facilities. Then there are also like – okay, and that's just starting. Right. Then you go down another level. You get to the local jails that wouldn't even be really called a prison, just a jail, a holding cell kind of thing. There are 3,163 of those and there are also 80 uh, Native American – like they, they're called Indian country jails. Um, they, well, that's not even – dude, we're not even thinking about military prisons. The brig. Yeah, and the – oh, the detention facilities, like uh, immigration facilities. The bizarre and labyrinthine network of detention centers for ICE. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole other conversation there. One of which was famously until quite recently a series of fences set up under a bridge. Yeah. Uh, civil commitment centers – State psychiatric hospitals, which are still around, mostly privatized, but still exist to some degree. You can be held without, uh, against your will in mm-hmm. those facilities. And prisons in U.S. territories, which occupy an even more uh, murky legal space. Including Guantanamo. Including Guantanamo, yeah. Every year, 626,000 people walk out of prison, but – they go to jail 10.6 million times each year. Jail and prison are as as many people will as many people will attest jail and prison are two very different beasts. Jail churn is pretty high because most people in jail have not been convicted. They're just waiting. Yeah, they've been arrested. They're desperately using that um that trope in fiction, their one phone call to get a, a bail bondsman or to get some money together to get out before they have to go to trial. Or in many, 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 many cases, they are too poor and, you know, uh, justice is a slot machine that only takes dollars. So if jail is like a Holiday Inn, prison is like a, a living community of some kind, like, a, so, like an apartment building. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, jail is like kind of like a slot machine that only takes dollars. So other people are too poor to make bail and they have to stay behind bars until their trial. And we've all seen these stories, right? There's somebody who was arrested for something. Maybe it's a case, wrong place, wrong time, but they can't make bail. And so they're in jail for what, months? And then they go to trial and the judge is like, who is this guy? Not to mention they're in jail. It, because they've done something, then they can't make bail. So then they lose their jobs because they're right. sitting in jail. And it just creates this cycle of being able to not afford anything that the system foists upon you, especially then once you are convicted and then have some kind of you know fee schedule that you have to deal with, but you've lost your job and become unemployable. Again, probably another conversation, but it's, it's, it's a problematic cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's this number might surprise some folks. Matt, you recently gave us the statistics of some people in jail. But of those people in jail, only about 150,000 or so on any given day have actually been convicted. And most of them, uh, to take your Holiday Inn comparison, Noel, are, or the apartment comparisons, they're, they're generally serving sentences that are less than a year. And almost half a million people are locked up purely because of drug offenses. So mainstream media, right, we all, we all know and love our favorite fiction films and stories, uh, often depicts the incarcerated population in some, in some wild extremes, right? There, there, there are two or three big stereotypes we see of people incarcerated. They're either woefully disenfranchised. You know what I mean? The system is broken. It crushed my life. You know, I got arrested uh, wrongfully, but I lost everything while I was waiting for my day in court. Or there might be the other extreme where these people are like absolute suicide squad level monsters and the state is being too nice by putting these people in time out for life and should just kill them. And then you'll see things like uh, Red and Shawshank Redemption. Right, who who has who has attained wisdom or higher enlightenment despite their physical confines and stuff like that. But regardless of how these people are depicted in fiction, life on the inside is not like what you'll see in a lot of those things. Like uh, what's that HBO series Oz got praised for being a little more realistic than most? Yeah, that show is insanely good. It was also like one of the early big HBO dramas, so it has this look. Of like video where it looks very real, almost like you're watching a play. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's. I love everything about that show. It's it's super great. Does it hold up? 
It does. Okay. I mean, I don't know. It's a little dated because it's super square, like the the framing or whatever. And also some of the some of the performances are a little over the top, but no, the stuff that it covers it's very theatrical, but it's also very grounded in reality. Mm, sort of a, uh, a harbinger of the gritty realism of Orange is the New Black. So <laughs> regardless of uh, any of us listening now, regardless of our stance on the prison system, uh, whether you think it's chugging right along, whether it's the bo- best we can do, uh, even if it's not perfect, whether you think it's broken, whether you think it's a system meant to oppress certain demographics here in this country, it's clear that crime does continue inside the walls of penitentiaries. There are gangs everywhere. People love all the vices still, you know what I mean? Uh, Drugs, sensual pleasure, old-fashioned violence. And the chances of that kind of violence are always somewhere in the cards. But to activists, policymakers, and others, there is another criminal in the mix here. And it's not a criminal that you're going to see on America's Most Wanted. It's not a criminal that you will see in a highly publicized O.J. Simpson-level trial, right? No, you would see them in the ads in between those programs. That's right. We're talking about insurance companies. Wait, are insurance companies criminals, you might be saying? Kind of. Let's have a word from our sponsor. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready to fight back against crime? 
Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Here's where it gets crazy. So let's call this part healthcare, profit, and public perception. In 2017, the Bureau of Justice Statistics released a study And they said that nearly half of the people held in jails suffer from some sort of mental illness and more than a quarter have a severe condition such as bipolar disorder. And again, as we we noted with jail, many of the people in jail are just waiting. They're churning through. They haven't been convicted and sentenced to their – you know, to that misdemeanor that's less than a year. But in the same year, 2017, the Bureau reported that about two-thirds of sentenced inmates in jail suffer from drug addiction or dependency. And that that conclusion they made, this is the scary part, it comes from numbers pulled in 2007 to 2009, which means it largely does not account for the opioid crisis. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's uh... – that's tough. Well, well, here's the other thing. So you've got a life sentence. Let's say you're going to be in prison for a long time. You're also going to be dealing with just what happens to your body as you're getting older, just age-related stuff, right? Like all kinds of diseases, all kinds of stuff that you need medication for, stuff that you need maybe even some, uh, I, don't, I don't know, recovery, physical recovery from and work on. And uh, these people are dealing with that. There's also, you know, we talked about the addiction, the mental illness. And when you put these together, kind of, as you're saying, Ben, getting older, being addicted to something probably, maybe continuing to be addicted while you're in, while you're incarcerated, uh, and then also, you know, having to deal with the mental illness, it all kind of just adds up into this pretty brutal thing Mm -hmm. where you're going to be probably experiencing withdrawal symptoms, especially early on in your situation there. Um, so like, I guess the first year of prison, which is what you were saying, a lot of people actually only spend about a year in there. It can be extremely rough on your health. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if you are, if you are encountering withdrawal symptoms from some sort of drug addiction and the medical staff on hand says, <laughs> we're not going to give you your drug of choice. But then another inmate sidles up to you maybe in the yard and says, hey, I can help you out if you do something for me. Dangerous times, right? And now I guess we can take a moment to talk about the politics here because I'm sure as we're, as we're exploring this, a lot of us are thinking, well, people aren't in prison for good behavior no one has ever like helped an old lady across the street so many times that they got put in jail. You know what I mean? You don't go there uh, for being an honors student uh, in, in terms of like civic-mindedness. So there's this kind of callous or, or colder argument that says, well, why should we take care of these people if they are a detriment to society? Because of that, attitude or because of that, you know, that school of thought, it's very difficult for politicians to argue in favor of advocacy for people who have medical conditions while they are incarcerated. You know what I mean? Like back in the back in the 80s especially, it was political suicide to say we should still treat human beings as humans. 
because then it would be immediately equated with being quote unquote soft on crime. Yeah. And the another, another difficulty there, a twist there is that it's very difficult in many cases for felons to vote. So until the demographics that are far more likely to get arrested and far more likely to serve longer sentences are voting in larger proportionate numbers, then politicians aren't going to go out of their way to be – I mean largely it's true. It's sad and it's – Kind of disgusting, but they're not going to go out of, out of the way to represent someone who they don't see as capable of handing a benefit to them. I mean, it's a huge yeah. downfall of our species, right? Everything is quid pro quo and stuff you should know has a great episode about how altruism doesn't really exist. But no yeah. one wants to hear that. That's depressing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, hey, yeah. really fast, I just want to talk about something with you guys. Uh, something. I don't know if this even really fits in the show, but something I think we can apply to this is the fact that unless you have experienced something in your life or you know someone directly who has experienced something, it's very difficult to have true empathy about a situation. Um, and I take this to to the concept of quitting smoking or attempting to quit smoking. Now, just just hear me out really fast. For a lot of people who have never been addicted to something like nicotine and attempted and failed to quit that substance or something like that, um, a lot of people will have, at least I've noticed in my experience, um, very negative thoughts on alternatives to quitting smoking even – or, you know, other things like that. Um, like they have an immediate negative reaction to something like that unless you are someone who has actually attempted and failed to do something like quitting smoking. And so I wonder if it's the same thing with the prison system and a lot of these other things where unless you have that direct experience with it, it's very difficult to even see it outside of the negative context which is already built up around it societally. Experiential knowledge, right? Like the uh, like how the stem cell conversation changed when uh, people who were uh, politicians opposed to stem cell research mm-hmm. realized the benefits it could have for people that they personally knew, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think so. I mean, or that's even what CBD it, oil. Yeah, see, absolutely. You know, uh, I think it's it's weird because here in here in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, where we record this podcast, uh, one. <laughs> Regardless of where you fall in drug criminalization, uh, I thought it was hilarious when we had some we had some politicians when the CBD um, the medical medicinal CBD bill or whatever it was called was first passed. The politicians who approved of it spent the majority of their time assuring everyone that no one would enjoy it. Yeah. Like, don't worry, no one is going to have fun. This is just for people with epilepsy. So you're sure you cannot get high? If I thought people would have anything like a good time on this, I would be burning down the Capitol. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm still mad that people foxtrot. Is burning down the Capitol when you smoke a bunch of weed in the Capitol? Uh, little known fact, yeah. It's part of the, uh, that's part of the Georgia congressional slang. Yeah. What, yeah. They, 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 they say their prayer and then they spark up a, a doobie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Guy Fox. I don't know if you remember him. He thought that barrel was actually full of doobies. Yeah. <laughs> no? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and, right? So the, um, the reason the politics matter here, the reason they're so fundamental is because this means that it skews the budget allocations for a lot of jails and penitentiaries. You want to spend a lot of money securing the place, right? Making it hard to walk out of. Uh, but to, why would you why would you uh, spend money on healthcare, especially if it means you could be accused of going soft on crime? This problem is exacerbated in jails that are in rural or poor counties, which happens a lot. Jails will tend to be in rural and poor counties uh, because they can be advertised as a source of jobs, right, for an ailing community. So administrators complain, you know, they say, look, I don't have the the resources. I can't make the numbers work. How am I supposed to hire, train, and supervise doctors and nurses, right? Like GPs, let alone specialized 
medical care? Like what what on earth am I going to be able to do to incentivize a uh, medical health professional to work with me? I certainly can't pay her or him as much as they could make in the private sector. So increasingly, they turn to for-profit companies. And this is a field of healthcare that a lot of people have probably not heard about. I don't know if any of us heard about it beforehand. I certainly didn't. Correctional healthcare. So think of like Blue Cross Blue Shield just for people in lockup. They pledge to deliver quality care while very, very attractive to administrators containing cost. It's part of a trend that started back in the 1980s during the Reagan administration where the idea was that in general, we will start to privatize things. We as a country in general will privatize things because we'll be cutting the fat and having cost as the – having cost as the, the bottom line will encourage more nimble, slimmed down and more efficient operations. This trend accelerated uh, after – the 90s, right, when we had a ton of uh, tough sentencing laws, like mandatory sentencing and stuff. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 made the number of people in jails and prisons jump from about 300,000 to more than 2 million today. Wow. Yeah. So according to a 2018 study from the Pew Charitable Trusts, more than half of the states um, hire private companies to provide at least some of that prison health care um, services, those prison health care services. The companies, they negotiate these multi-year contracts with each jail and prison that they serve, medical staff and prescription drugs and outside services such as hospital stays um, constitute the, the bulk, the lion's share of these costs. Uh, oftentimes, the companies receive a per day, per individual rate. So profits depend on keeping costs below that that amount. Um, sometimes contracts include provisions that increase a company's potential profit if it holds down transfers to hospitals or to other outside providers. Ben, can you help us unpack this? Because I don't know about you, but this seems a little on the shady side. For sure. Your spider sense is correct, Noel. Sometimes um – this stuff can get lost in the legal language, but this is a very important turn in the story here. The companies, these uh, private health providers for prisons have negotiated these things that say, look, we will make more money if everyone is – and this is just for uh, sake of argument. If everyone is limited to uh, $400 a day. The medical care for all these inmates is $400 per person per day or less and is probably as less uh, than we will make another profit. Furthermore, if uh, X number of people or less than that go to a hospital per year or to a specialist off-site, then we'll make another we'll, – we'll make another windfall, another bonus. So – we know that private health insurance follows the same thing. It's not a it's not a new game, right? They want to avoid unnecessary tests and procedures. You probably hear that a lot uh, back in the old death panel argument days. But this this is very important. This means that if someone in in jail or in prison believes that their health or even their life is in jeopardy, they can't do what any of us do. They can't just call nine one one. They can't. You know, uh, they can't play the great medical debt game that's killing this country and pay eleven grand for an ambulance over time. Instead, they have to hope and pray, if they are the religious type, that someone in the prison believes that they are exhibiting the signs of a stroke. And they have to hope and pray that it's a minor stroke. Or they have to hope and pray that the diabetes doesn't catch up to them and they uh, get some help before they go into insulin shock. There are no comprehensive statistics about the prevalence of private health care companies in jail. And that makes sense because why would you want people to know that outside of maybe a trade show where you're pitching to a warden? There you go. But we do have some stuff. We know that the National Commission on Correctional Health Care – has has 
accredited these programs around the country, and 70% of the jails it inspects outsource their medical services. And when they outsource these, for-profit companies have have a pretty big chunk of those contracts. Oh, boy. So let's uh, let's get into what we know about some of this stuff. Um, just it's going to get even deeper and darker after a quick word from our sponsor. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back. 
So we've been talking in general terms about private companies, right? Private healthcare companies. But let's let's name a few because we have some names, right? So we've got uh, at least one big one, and it used to be called Correct Care Solutions, and that's the one that I had heard of before, but it's now called WellPath. And there's also Horizon Health. It looks like Horizon, but with a C. Those are two of the bigger players. Is that like a Cronut kind of? Yeah. Okay. So it's on the Horizon. Yeah. But it's like Correction. It's the Correction Horizon of Health. It used to be called Correctional Medical Services Incorporated, and then before that, it was Prison Health Services Incorporated. Kind of like Blackwater or Academi or XE. Just uh, change it up a little bit. Just change the names. It'll be fine. It'll be grand. What an adventure. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a reason why those names changed, just like you said, like with Blackwater. With Blackwater, it was about – public perception, right, with some scandals that were occurring. When we say scandals, we mean pretty much murder that was occurring. Uh, with with these companies, it's because they've been sued a lot. The two of them together combined have been sued about 1,500 times in the fast, past five years. And a lot of those were over, you know, accusations of things like neglect and malpractice. And in dozens of cases, uh, even wrongful injury or uh, up to death. Horizon, one of those companies, was the defendant in more than 1,000 cases, so of those 1,500. And it's interesting because Horizon cares for about 180,000 people day to day. WellPath, in contrast, handles about 250,000 people day to day. Wow. Representatives for both companies say, well, these lawsuits are often flimsy, frivolous, or inconclusive. And we know – you know, again, people aren't in jail or prison for being on their best behavior. From what we understand, uh, the vast majority of people who are inmates are just trying to get through their time and get get out. And the other side of the bars gives us a different perspective. The prison guards can assure us that there are there are multiple people who do have mental health problems. You know, they're they're flinging poo. Maybe uh, maybe there are some people malingering, which means faking an illness simply to uh, change up their routine to get out somewhere. You know what I mean? But be that as it may, it doesn't negate the fact that these cases of wrongful injury or death have have been decreed legitimate. Public interest lawyers have brought class action suits. Uh, alleging inadequate health care across the entire system. There, there are multiple, multiple examples of this, unfortunately, some which end in death. But we, we've got – let's just do one example from Arizona. So in Arizona, uh, civil rights groups filed a class action suit in 2012. Uh, a year later, after the state passed legislation privatizing prison health care, it signed a contract with uh, Corazon – to provide medical services in those prisons. Then in 2015, a federal district court that sought to uh, resolve the suit approved a settlement in which the state pledged to overhaul its care. But last June, Judge David Duncan found that, quote, widespread and systematic failures remain, end quote, and held the state in contempt, issuing it fines of more than $1 million. And that's interesting because the when, when they're defending themselves, uh, the private prison insurance companies will say that part of their contract indemnifies the state or you know the the party from the government that they're contracting with indemnifies them from legal costs. But in the case of Arizona, the judge wasn't having it and essentially said no. Don't put this on them. You're the ones who agreed to let this happen. In the meantime, by the way, uh, while these things are winding and wending through the court system, people are dying, you know, and many of whom uh, committed crimes. But the ones who are dying were not sentenced to the death penalty. And the question then becomes, is this sentencing people to death, which I know is a, a really messed up way to look at it, but it's not unfair. According to 
Steve Cole, a journalist who wrote an excellent article for The New Yorker in 2019, evidence from cases across the country suggests that four decades of policy failures in both healthcare and criminal justice reform have left a largely neglected population vulnerable and at times at risk, and that for-profit companies, which were promoted as a solution, have instead become an integral part of a troubled system. They were supposed to fix it back in the 80s. And all they did was fix their profit margins. Yeah. And now it's become too big to fail in a way. You can't really remove it. It even goes down to even goes down to the food, right? Because we, we joke about food all the time, but food's part of your health. It's a massive part of your health. <laughs> you are what you eat, buddy, and it really is like the simplest thing to to say that. My wife I my wife and I have a an ongoing like joke argument about that, about how important your food is. Um, she likes to eat a lot more healthy than I do. Mm-hmm. And I just I just like the good tasting stuff, you know? The you know, stuff the, that you uh, the, evolved to <laughs> seek out, right? Yeah, yeah. The sugar, the fat, the salt. Yeah, mostly the the fats, like the bacons. You also like the heat though, don't you, man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, give me the, the spicy bacon. You're a spicy boy. I'm good to go. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things where it is true. If you're eating more healthy, you're getting more nutrients, you are in a better spot for all the other stuff and you're not going to have as many issues, at least theoretically. But we we got a caller, someone, a listener called in from Alabama and told us about this story where there was a local sheriff's office that was getting, they would make money off the top of whatever money they didn't spend mm-hmm. on food for the the prison system within the county. And we haven't looked into it fully yet. We do have a story here from NPR about a sheriff in Alabama uh, that the caller was mentioning. He took almost a million dollars, $750,000 legally, he took this money Mm -hmm. to buy a beach house, money that was meant to feed inmates within his county. Yeah, Etowah County Sheriff Todd Entrican. Uh, Todd, if you're listening, I hope you enjoy your beach house. What Todd did was pocket this, you know, 750 large that was supposed to feed inmates of the jail that he supervised. Then, according to the Birmingham News, he used the money that he pocketed or the majority of it to buy a beach house because Alabama has this law that allows sheriffs to, quote, keep and retain unspent money from jail food provision accounts. So sheriffs across the state of Alabama take the money as personal income. Like a bonus? Yeah. For like doing a good job because they had like a surplus kind of? Well, it's not attached to doing a good job. It's just a – I mean if the good job is defined uh, as taking less money to feed people, then they can take it. It goes both ways though. People are quick to point out if they have a shortfall in the budget in that regard, then the sheriff as an individual is personally held liable for covering the gap. But turns out that they don't really go out of their way to spend that much on feeding their inmates. Yeah, this that's uh, really de- depressing uh, and messed up, Sheriff. Also, we don't know how many people are doing this because sheriffs across the state apparently have done this for a long time. That law dates back to the Depression. And according to the Southern Center for Human Rights – Quote, it is presently unknown how much money sheriffs across the state have taken because most do not report it as income on state financial disclosure forms. Yeah. So you're not required to specify any money that you take in in this way above $250,000 a year. And he brought in 750000 You have to wonder what they're, what, what they're eating, you know? It makes me think of – do you guys remember the controversy of Nutriloaf? Do, do you remember hearing yeah, about that? Yeah, I do. It was like a food substitute, kind of like Soylent Green. Yeah, kind of. It's like the – the OK, you know, there's Meatloaf. There's Nutriloaf, which is also called Meal Loaf because it is – it's – this un, uh, unholy amalgamation of vegetables, fruit, meat, bread, other grains baked into a solid loaf. The ingredients vary, uh, but there is something called dairy blend. Sounds like fruitcake to me. 
Yuck. But with fruitcake, they at least keep the shape of the fruits, right, in there? Yeah. Well, they, they dice well, them they're up they're diced sometimes. and cubed and kind of like – and but, also candied and gummy looking. But they're identifiably fruit, right? Still? Yes, that's right. Okay. I see what you're saying. This is just like mm. ground into a pulp, into yeah. a paste, and then that's baked into kind of this amalgam of God knows what, right? Ugh. Yeah. Oh, God. And uh, that one even went to court uh, several times. In a case called Gordon versus Barnett, the district court for the Western District of Washington uh, ruled that someone got all the way to court arguing that eating Nutriloaf was cruel and unusual punishment. And although the court ruled that it was not cruel and unusual, it was a punishment and that prisoners should be entitled to due process before they have to eat it. It's so bad that you have to get like the law involved for you to be forced to eat this, at least according to that judge. Jeez. Just to ju- God, just to jump back into this, I'm reading a little bit further down in the article. It gives a little more context to this. So apparently this sheriff, uh, and uh, how did we say it? Entrican? 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 Entrican. Like Etrigan the demon in he's in DC Alabama. Comics. Oh, that's – ooh, that's really cool. So yeah, so he's in Alabama. He's, he's Entrican. Um, so when he came into office – uh, the previous sheriff died while he was in office. Okay, and this this money this money that's meant for inmates for food, um, that account got drained and it was given to the family of that sheriff that just passed. And that was about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or some something to that effect. All that money was taken out. So then this current sheriff had to take out a personal loan, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, just to keep the inmates fed. And he was paying off that for years and years and years. So it is interesting how the tides kind of turned with him having to take out this initial loan to him getting a beach, you know, a beach house. And then uh, ultimately owning property that's worth over $1.7 million mm-hmm. through, you know, all these various things. That's he and his wife. Um, and then also the fact that he makes about $93,000 a year as the sheriff of a county. Just base level, yeah. Base salary. level. And then he's able to make the bonus essentially on this one account that mm. is directly tied to the food that would go to inmates. That is puzzling and strange and I will never fully understand that. And it is legal. It is completely not against the law yep. yet. So this – this is such a brief look, but it leads us to the question, what is to be done? The problem comes down to profit, but it also comes down to accountability, right? The the healthcare providers say, you know, again, we take care of the legal cost in many cases, but also this is a $10 billion plus dollar industry and those companies are obligated to seek profit on behalf of their owners, According to David Fothy, the director of the National Prison Project at the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, these companies have compelling incentives to cut costs and staff and that can result to denying care in what is literally – and I don't know if he was going for a pun here – a captive market. Like they can't – they cannot switch insurance providers, right? They can't say, well, this doctor stinks and they misdiagnosed my appendicitis and I almost died. I want someone else. They'll say, nope, sorry, you're going to have to stick with this person for at least the next two to five years that you're locked up. And Fathi says, you know, he says, I don't mean to suggest that government-run prison healthcare is perfect. It's often appallingly deficient, but at least when the government is providing the service, there's some measure of oversight, some measure of democratic control. And a lot of people may say, well, this is a rock and a hard place situation because neither is particularly great for people incarcerated. But then there's something weird that we didn't talk about. Because of the way that the law changed to guarantee you know, for, for much of uh, U.S. history, the idea of prisoners receiving medical care was just like bonkers. Why would you do that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But as the laws changed, even though the prison system is, is terrible for people who are caught up in it and even though it often increases a person's chances of committing a crime or recidivism, which is when they return to prison – uh, inmates' rights to health care have actually expanded in comparison to the public. The inmates the, – the rulings that gave inmates a right to access to health care, at least on paper, 
have never been applied to free citizens. I want to say that one more time. Inmates' access to a doctor, to health care, have been guaranteed in this country, at least on paper. If you are listening to this and you are not in prison, in that regard, the people incarcerated have more rights than you do. It does. Oof. Yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if sometimes it would be a better move to do something to get incarcerated to get your health back if you're in a tight enough spot. That's scary to think about. And People I, have done that. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I know it has been done. I There are specific examples. But just the fact that that is a situation you could find yourself in in this country is baffling and um, terrifying. Yeah, not even to mention that some people do it just for shelter sometimes mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't happen all the time, but people do go to jail on purpose. Some people go to uh, bring in drugs from the outside one way or another, probably ingesting it somehow, right, and then passing it. Uh, in 2012, a guy named Frank Morocco of Amherst, New York, was unable to afford health care for a rare form of leukemia. He was – he was uh, released from prison in 2012. He had been in jail for 20 years on felony drug charges. So he's 56 years old. So he went in when he was 36. He had leukemia. He had no way to pay for it. He had been incarcerated for so long that he walked into a grocery store, stepped up to the counter, just stole 23 bucks worth of goods in plain sight so that the employees could see him, and then walked out got arrested on shoplifting, which violated his supervised release, and he was hoping it would land him back in prison so that he could get some help with his leukemia. Did it work? It was not reported whether Morocco got the treatment, but he was released from prison in, on the shoplifting charge in April of 2013. Wow. Well, I guess I hope he did. But yep. again, you know, this is such a tough topic because there really there really is such a range of humanity that exists within the prison system and just of, you know, depending on your sense of morality, uh, it really affects the way you're going to feel about this. Um, it really does. In the, in the end, every single person in a prison everywhere is a human being that, that you mm-hmm. know, and the best of times and the best of – um, idealism, they deserve a shot at being healthy. Um, but if that person has, you know, hurt another in one way or, in, you know, in one fashion or another, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to stomach the thought of them getting better health care than just someone who isn't doing so great financially outside of prison. This is a really tough topic. It is. It is. Let's also, I mean, let's take it a step further and say that one of the reasons uh, the prison system in the U.S. has so many problems is that it is not a program meant to rehabilitate people in, a long, in many ways. It makes me think about that sicko documentary mm-hmm. from several years back. Mm-hmm. And we want to hear your take. Thank you for taking this strange journey with us. What role do you feel private, uh, private medical care or private medical providers should play in the U.S. prison system, is this is this something that uh, people incarcerated, you know, somehow deserve? You know, is that is that just part of the risk that they knowingly or unknowingly took when they committed a crime? Uh, how how would it be addressed? I'm sure we have several people who are saying right now, you know, that I I pay my taxes, I I, I pay a lot, right? And I still struggle to pay my own medical bills. Why should this be better for someone else who, who didn't who didn't obey the the rules of our land? And we don't want to say it's necessarily better because I think as we've illustrated here, uh, people are dying from easily preventable conditions in prison. Exactly. You can tell us about this on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook uh, where you can meet our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners on our Facebook community page. Here's where it gets crazy. If you're not down with the social media rigmarole and you want to reach out to us uh, using some older uh, technology, you can give us a call at our hotline where we are 1-833-STDWYTK. 
Or you can just chant our name like that, and uh, we will probably um, press to digitate before you. That's right. And uh, shout out to everybody who's been calling in. Uh, Remember I told you guys the other day, I think it was like 20-something messages. I started, uh, you know, categorizing a lot of them and downloading them. We're up to 34 now in like the past couple of days. Um, And I'm just going through these. People keep calling in. Don't stop. We're loving it. You're sending all kinds of really interesting stuff. We wouldn't have known about that Alabama sheriff and the food thing if you hadn't called us and told us about it. So keep it coming. If you don't want to do any of that stuff, please reach out to us via email. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.